I have to admit, this new setup with our band right behind us is kind of interesting. You come up here and they're like right there. Hey, guys. Well done. Well, once again, my name is Steve Tyra. Um, Our senior pastor, Tommy Allen, is at this week what I like to call Jedi training. This uh, This is the communications workshop you've been hearing him talk about. And so I have the privilege of sharing the Word of God with you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to Luke chapter 11. We're continuing our series in the book of Luke. This passage should also be inserted in your order of worship, and so you can look at it there. I'm going to be reading starting at verse 14. And so hear the word of God. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the glory of God has come upon you. For when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Thanks be to God, for this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now as we enter in? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the scripture this morning, even as it is a challenging scripture. We pray that as we hear it, that you give me your Holy Spirit, that I may speak your truth, and also that you give the Spirit to those who listen, that they may have open hearts and open minds to receive the gospel and be transformed by it. And it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, for the last two years or so, every Monday night, I and a group of young men from this church get together uh, mostly to watch movies. Now, in the past, we've done things like watch through all the old William Shatner Star Trek movies, which tells you right away how socially well-adjusted and hip this uh, group of young men is. But last October, we were struggling with what to watch. We sort of finished a series, and we were saying, what should we watch now? And given that it was October, one of the stupidest things I've ever said came out of my mouth. Hey, guys! For October, let's watch some old-school, classic horror movies. Now, generally speaking, I hate horror movies because I'm a wimp. But in my defense, in my defense, when I said old-school, classic horror, what I meant was something like Alfred Hitchcock, right? The Birds or Rear Window, something like that. I felt pretty happy and pretty calm at the prospect of watching a movie like that. But I was not prepared when someone said, Gee, Steve... Great idea. Let's watch the original Exorcist. (laughs) It was at that point I started to get nervous, right? I heard legends of this film from my dad. My dad saw it when he was younger and it scared him for years. 
apparently. But even then, you know, trying to be brave, I managed to shrug. I said to myself, you know, this movie was made in 1973. I'm not even sure movies were in color in 1973. (laughs) Special effects? They didn't have special effects back then. It's probably about as scary as that abominable snowman in the Rudolph Christmas special. It's like the same era. So, we watched it. It was in color. The special effects were amazing, even by today's standards. And I may or may not have screamed like a girl um, on more than one occasion. All I'll say in my defense is I'm not the only one, even the only one in this room, um, that would have to cop to that. I was not shrugging by the end of the movie, to, um, safe to say. And, you know, the movie, as I've thought about it, is so scary. It's billed as the scariest film ever made, and I would say it lives up to that. The reason it's so scary is not just the special effects, as good as those are. It's because the writers of the film understand or understood human nature. In particular, they understood something I'm going to call this morning the power of unity. The power of unity among human beings and also its weakness. How easily human beings are divided against one another. How easily our unity is split. There's a scene late in the movie, and by the way, for nervous parents out there, I'm not recommending this movie. Believe me, it was like traumatic. I'm not recommending it. But there is a scene late in the movie where the two priests who are sort of taking on this demon are gaining the upper hand. They appear to be winning because they are united with one another. And then a series of events divides them. The younger of the two leaves, and the older is left in the room alone, isolated with the monster. And that's when things begin to go wrong, even more terribly wrong than they have been going. In other words, the demon has broken their unity and so proceeds to break them. Now, as I've thought about it, that theme of unity of its power, but also its weakness, is found in the Bible. Our our story this morning, in many ways, sees people struggling with this idea of unity. It begins, of course, with an exorcism, right? An exorcism occurs right here in the Bible, and people are amazed, but then they begin to struggle. What does it mean to be unified, they seem to be asking, and Jesus seems to be asking them. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at this story and that question in three parts. We're going to see three kinds of unity at play in this story. There is a unity around evil, a unity around good, and finally a unity around Jesus. And we're going to be looking at each of those three in turn, beginning with unity around evil. Let's look closely again at verses 14 through 20. So starting at verse 14. Now he, that is Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Now again, we, we see this exorcism takes place, and it says that many of the people were amazed, but some of those who see it um, say that Jesus has been casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Now we know, if we look at the, this story, the versions of it in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, we know that those some people that are accusing him of this are the Pharisees, right? That's no surprise if you know the Gospel stories. The party of the Pharisees are often Jesus' opponents, and so here too. If you're wondering what this Beelzebul business is, what does that even mean? Well, it comes from the name Baal, Right In Old Testament times, in, in ancient Israel times, Baal was a pagan god. And in Jewish tradition, he came to be associated with the king of hell, with the chief of demons. Beelzebul is a play on the name Baal, and it means Lord of the Flies, which is also the title of a pretty fantastic novel, um, in case you were wondering. You notice that Jesus just calls this person, this prince of demons, the Satan, which means something like the adversary or the enemy. And so at this point, you might be wondering then, how could the Pharisees be so blind as to mistake Jesus as an agent of Satan? How could they assume that Jesus was an agent of evil? That's a great question, and we're going to answer it in just a moment, so hang on to it. But notice right here at the beginning how Jesus responds to them. Jesus replies to the Pharisees' accusation by saying, what you're saying is literally impossible. If Satan were aiding me in casting out demons, if he were aiding me in exorcisms, he'd be fighting against himself. Satan's house, in other words, would be divided, and a divided house cannot stand. You notice what Jesus' reply assumes, what what it implies, that according to Jesus, even the powers of evil, even the powers of hell themselves, understand the importance of unity that even the powers of evil must achieve unity in some degree in order to be effective. You know, it's funny, the week I was preparing this sermon, I was also preparing for a class on Dietrich Bonhoeffer that we began um, just before this service. If you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, he was a German Lutheran pastor during World War II. He spoke out and preached against the Nazis, and uh, for that he was martyred by the Nazis, hanged just two months before the war ended in 1945. And when you're reading about that period of history, uh, World War II, what strikes me, at least, is how unified the Nazis were, at least in the early part of the war, and how disorganized and divided all the opponents of the Nazis were, at least at first. Even the United States was of a very divided mind how to respond to the Nazis, at least until the trauma of Pearl Harbor sort of woke the nation up and, and got them to respond. But in the early part of the war... The allies, what would become the allies, were completely divided, whereas the Nazis were united, and they exploited those divisions for their own ends. The Nazis had unity, evil unity, horrible unity, but effective unity nonetheless. And that stories like that from history, I think, caution us when we talk about unity. I think Jesus' own words would caution us when we talk about it. On the one hand, unity among human beings is certainly a powerful thing. On the other hand, I think we tend to assume that it is everywhere and always a good thing. It's always a positive thing. It's perhaps because we live in a culture that's so often divided. You know, we live in a culture that's often divided along political lines, economic lines, racial lines, whatever you might think. And so we long for unity. But the truth is, some forms of unity are worse than division. Some forms of unity produce horrors. 
And Jesus makes it clear in this, this text and, and others that part of his mission and coming among us is to destroy unity that is founded on evil, to destroy any um, coming together that is, has as its center evil. As far as evil is concerned, Jesus has come not as a uniter, but as a great divider. And we see that in the first of two parables that he tells the Pharisees. We're going to look now at just verses 21 through 22. Jesus says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he trusted, and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, in this parable, the small parable that Jesus tells the Pharisees, he illustrates his own mission against evil. Jesus compares Satan to a strong man that rules over a house in which there are many goods. Now, it seems that the goods in Satan's house are people. People like the possessed man Jesus has just delivered, but also, more broadly, the nations. We know from other parts of Scripture that Satan had power over the nations. During the temptation of Jesus, Satan offers that power as sort of a temptation. In other words, Satan rules over a house that is not divided, that has unity, that is at peace, in a sense, At least he does until Jesus arrives. For you see, Jesus is the stronger man who binds Satan and begins to divide his house, breaks in and begins dividing people, bringing people out of the reign of evil and into this thing Jesus calls the kingdom of God. And just as Jesus is a divider in response to evil, so too are Christians who follow Jesus in response to evil. I've already mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was accused by um, the German nation at that time, the Third Reich, of being a divider of his people. You were turning people against their government, right? He was a divider. Closer to home, this month, don't we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr., a Christian minister who was often accused of being a divider, right? You're stirring up trouble, right? But in retrospect, I think it's pretty clear he was doing the Lord's work. He was meant to be one who stirred up trouble. He was called by God to do that. And so in response to evil, Jesus and Christians both are dividers. We confront that kind of unity. And none of that actually may seem that surprising, right? Even if you're not a Christian, the fact that Jesus and his followers would be against Satan might seem kind of obvious, even if you've just seen a couple movies. But what comes next is not so obvious. In fact, it may seem very surprising, even scandalizing. Because as Jesus continues this conversation with the Pharisees, it becomes clear that he has not just come to divide evil unity. He's also come to divide good unity, or unity based on the good. And that is what we will look at next. You know, I asked a question just a while ago. How could the Pharisees be so blind as to mistake Jesus for an agent of Satan? How could they assume that Jesus was an agent of evil? And I think the time has come to answer that question. It helps to know something about the Pharisees. And the first thing to know is that in New Testament times, the Pharisees saw themselves as agents of unity within Judaism and within the people of Israel. The Pharisees are working tirelessly to try to unite Israel around a common goal. And that goal is, of course, obedience to God's law, obedience to Torah. And so they struggle to teach the law and enforce the law because they believe if people can just come together and obey, then God will bless them. You might say that the Pharisees are practicing a unity around being good. 
The Pharisees believe if people can just be good and act right, then they will have unity in the people of God. Now, at this point, if you're paying attention, you might start to feel a little uncomfortable. Because do you think we could ever sympathize with the Pharisees here? Is it ever the case in the church in America that we say to ourselves, man, if only we could build, oh, I don't know, a moral majority in our country. If only people could act right and be good, then we'd all come together and God would surely bless us. If if things could just be like the good old days when everyone seemed to act right, then we'd all get along and God would bless us. If that sounds familiar at all, if you've ever felt that way, and I think many of us probably have, even including myself, then we too, we like the Pharisees, need to hear this second parable that Jesus tells them. And that's found in verses 24 through 26, which I will read now. Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I shall return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So Jesus tells another story, this time of a man who's had a demon cast out of him. Now, that is unquestionably a good thing. It's always better to have a demon out of you than a demon possessing you. But unfortunately, because the man in the story is content with that good thing, because he stops there, with just mere goodness. Great, I haven't been possessed. His last state is worse than the first. He ends up in a worse place than where he started because he stops at just goodness. He just stops at having a good thing done for him. Now, Jesus might be referencing here the fact that the Pharisees also apparently had some exorcists that even seemed to be effective. After all, the Pharisees served the true God. I mean, they worshiped the true God, at least. And so apparently they've been effective as exorcists. But Jesus' point is probably broader than that as well. Jesus is calling into question the Pharisees' whole program of unity, this program that if we could just come together and be good, we'll have unity. Jesus is saying, you know, you can be good. You can obey God's law. You can cast out demons. You can do works of charity. You can do whatever you want. But if you just stop there, if it goes no further than that, then all you're doing is making people tidy, well-swept houses that are empty. And empty houses, according to Jesus, are houses that are in danger of being haunted. The tidy, well-swept houses ultimately do not have what it takes to oppose the forces of evil. In fact, you can start out with this intention of doing good and end up serving evil. Now that, if nothing else, should make us a bit uncomfortable. Because is it ever the case that the church, maybe even just our church, is tempted to be content with mere goodness, with good things? Maybe it's a ministry that we're involved in. Maybe it's serving the poor, something very good. Maybe it's simple togetherness, just the fact that we like to be together and we like each other. That's also a very good thing. But if we stop there... If that becomes the basis of our unity, if that's what we want to bring us together, I think Jesus would say to us, you are very tidy, you are very well swept, but you are empty houses. And empty houses are in danger of being 
haunted. Now, I should make clear, I don't believe that Christians are in danger of literal possession. I, in fact, I think that's impossible because we have the Holy Spirit. But there's more than one way to have a haunted house. Uh, apart from literal possession, maybe it's just that we're building church communities that are of no threat. They're no threat to the powers of evil. You could put it this way. You could ask the question, is Satan scared when he looks at our church? Do the special effects going on here or rather the unity going on here. Does it scare Satan? Does it make him sweat? Does the strong man see his house being broken into and his goods being divided? If the answer is yes, then it's because we will have embraced a a unity that is beyond mere goodness. It's beyond just being good or doing good. It's a unity that is found in Jesus, the third type of unity that we need to discuss this morning, and the last I'm going to go ahead and read really the one verse we haven't looked at yet, and that's verse 23. It's probably the most important in the passage. Verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, I feel like either Tommy or whoever else is up here says this every week, right? But I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. This may be the most misunderstood verse in the Bible, right? We tend to say it a lot. But in this case, it, it may be true, right? Jesus makes this statement that he who does not gather with me uh, scatters. And in English, that's pretty ambiguous. Those two verbs, gather and scatter, could probably take, in English at least, be taken a couple different ways. As I talk to people, I think most people take it in a passive sense. As if Jesus were saying, he who is not gathered to me or with me will be scattered. In Greek, however, that's an impossible way to put, the, to put that. It's an impossible translation. The two verbs there, sunagain, to gather together, and skorpizain, to scatter, have to take an object, even if the object is implied. In other words, Jesus is saying, he who does not gather others with me, or he who does not gather something with me, is in fact scattering them. In other words, the issue here is not whether you are being gathered or scattered. The issue is whether you are gathering or scattering. In other words, you are an active agent in what Jesus is saying. You know, these words, these two verbs are actually used most often um, in terms of farming, in terms of agriculture. You gather together wheat, right? Or you gather together a flock of sheep. And wouldn't you know it that wheat and sheep tend to be some of the most common images in the Gospels for the mission of the kingdom of God. That we're supposed to go forth and gather the harvest, gather the harvest of people who respond to the Gospel of Jesus. Jesus seems to be saying, if you put all of that together, that guys, Pharisees, or whoever else is listening, if you're trying to unite people around anything, anything, even something very good, even the very law of God itself, If you're trying to unite and gather people around anything other than me, you are not, in fact, gathering, but you are, in fact, scattering. That any unity that is not based on me, even unity that's based on goodness, will, in fact, fail. You will, in fact, scatter people, not unite them. Now, or as Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. Now, let's stop for a moment and just reflect on the sheer cheek Right? In, in that statement. Who talks like that? Here is one of the places where we see very clearly 
the difference between Jesus and really any other religious teacher you could think of. Any other religious teacher, whether it's the Buddha or Muhammad, they come to people and say, look, I've got what God or something wants you to do. Here's the rules. Now what are you going to do? Are you going to follow them or not follow them? Jesus does not say that. Jesus comes and he says, I have come to give you not rules, but myself. I have come to give you myself. Now what are you going to do with me? You know, that reminds me, as we reflect on sort of the shockiness of what Jesus says, of something that C.S. Lewis once wrote. C.S. Lewis is most famous uh, for his series of children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. But he also wrote books for grown-ups, too. And in one of those books, Mere Christianity, he has something to say about a mistake that people often make about Jesus. And I thought I'd read you that passage real briefly, because I think it fits um, our our scripture here really well. And so C.S. Lewis writes... I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is Jesus. That is, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If you actually look closely at what Jesus says, he's not a great moral teacher. He doesn't say, here's morality, now do something with it. He says, here I am. I am salvation. Now what are you going to do with me? In other words, the question Jesus is always asking us at every moment is, what are you going to do with me? Now we have to answer that question, first of all, as individuals. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we'll have to, we'll have to ask, do we come forward and accept Jesus as our Lord and God? Do we enter into this thing called the kingdom of God, this transformation that he's bringing about even now on earth, and so be transformed ourselves? But having answered that question as individuals, we then also have to answer it as a people, as a church. We need to ask ourselves, are we a church that is united just by goodness, by trying to to be good, or even good things like fellowship or a little bit of ministry here or there? Or are we a church that is united in Christ, in the living presence of Jesus in our midst, and is being transformed and sent out on the mission of Christ by that presence? Are we a church that's desiring to see our neighborhoods transformed in the kingdom of God, in the gospel of the kingdom? The extent to which we embrace Jesus is the extent to which we will have true unity, unity that is lasting and deep and real. Because after all, Jesus doesn't love division for its own sake. He doesn't have sort of this perverse love of division. In fact, Jesus' whole mission is reconciliation and peace. By dying on the cross for us, Jesus has made peace between God and man, but also man and man. One of the great glories of the gospel in the New Testament is people who are divided, people like Jews and Gentiles, or people today who may be divided by um, politics or race or gender or class or whatever you could think of, 
they can come together, perhaps for the first time, in a real unity. They can come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the great glory of the gospel. It's the glory of true unity. Now, to be specific to our context here at First EPC, and here I'm just keeping it real, I'd suggest that a good test for us is that the more we look like the neighborhoods around us, the more the faces here look like the faces at Panther Lake Elementary or any other school you can think of, that's the extent to which we can say, you know, the finger of God, the the power of God is at work here. And that is also, by the way, the moment when Satan begins to get afraid. Satan's not afraid of tidy churches, churches that are just good. He's very afraid of churches that are powerful in the Lord Jesus and are reaching out with the love of the kingdom. That scares him to death. That is when Satan becomes afraid of us. But for that to happen, we have to embrace the gospel. And not just once at the beginning of our Christian lives. We have to embrace it every day, every moment even, constantly asking ourselves the question, what will we do with Jesus? He is here to make things new. He is here to make the kingdom advance on earth. What do we do now? What do we do with him? Think about that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel of the kingdom, that it crushes evil, but it also sweeps aside our lackluster, weak attempts at unity and just mere goodness, that just being nice to one another or good is not going to unite us, that we have a deeper unity in you. We pray, Lord, that you send your Holy Spirit, that he may indeed unite us, make us of one heart, one mind, that we may go forth on the mission of the kingdom and see this area, see this town transformed. And it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.